Amen. You may be seated. Looks like Royal Flurry just made his first appearance. That is awesome. Good to see you guys. <laughs> if you have your Bible today, will you turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 21? The text is printed uh, on page 11 in your bulletin. We'll begin reading in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, Jesus that is, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. For when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you then know that its desolation has come near." Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled." And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord. And Lord, as we deal with this very complex text today, please give us wisdom and insight and, and work in us great glorious change through it. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So I want to ask you guys, when you hear language like we just read in verses 10 and 11, you hear nation rise against nation, great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences and terrors and great signs from heaven. Or you hear maybe over in verses 25 through 27, signs in sun, moon and stars roaring of the sea and the waves, powers of the heavens shaken, the Son of Man coming with power and great glory in the clouds. What do you think of? What do you think this is talking about? Right now. Okay, Joan says, I'm reading the newspaper. This sounds like right now. What are y'all, what's this talking about? 
Destruction of Jerusalem, who else? You hear that kind of language. You've heard this throughout your life. You think of the end of the world, maybe. So what, what do you assume Jesus is talking about? Well, you know, I was like many of you. I grew up in circles where reading that kind of language, it was just obvious to us that that was language referring to what we called the last days before the second coming of Jesus. And it's language that's a little bit like other places in the Bible we could turn to. A lot of other texts in the New Testament and some in the Old Testament where you'd get this kind of, kind of apocalyptic language and we'd say, well, obviously this is talking about the last days before the second coming of Christ. And in my circles growing up, connected with that way of reading this text and other texts, connected with that way of reading was often a sense that the return of Jesus is imminent. We are at the end of history, and it's coming any minute, any day. Another thing accompanied this reading, a belief that we should expect mostly bad stuff between now and the end. (laughs) The good stuff that we all hope for in the world awaits, it's on the other side of Jesus' second coming. A third thing accompanied this reading. We would, you know, to your point, Joan, we would attempt to tie these Bible signs of Jesus' second coming, Jesus' return. Like the, the Bible gives us these signs of his return and his coming, and we would try to tie these to, to, to stuff in the news, to current events. You know, kind of reading, especially stuff in the Middle East, through the lens of like what this is saying here. And so things in the news were just so significant because it might be this. This might be an example of the earthquakes and pestilences and you know, the powers of the heavens being shaken. And a final thing that accompanied this way of reading was, for me at least as a young person, a lot of anxiety about the coming tribulation. Like who wants to go through desolation and tribulation and these crazy things said about being hated by all and turned over to governors and kings and all this persecution. And along with that kind of anxiety about tribulation coming was a real urgency. We need to get people saved because time is running out. We don't, you know, it's, it's going to be too late for a lot of people. And so it was very hard to justify spending time on anything else than soul winning. Now, as a pastor, I have met a lot of people who still read the Bible, read these texts that way. And I've noticed something about people who read these texts that way. It produces a certain way of being in the world a way of being in the world that is a few things. One, very pessimistic about history. A way of kind of being in the world that looks around and invests world events, especially disasters, especially crises, especially signs of hostility against Christians, looks around and invests all of this stuff with just apocalyptic meaning. Like elections have like eschatological significance and world events have, you know, COVID was eschatological in its significance, right? The end is near and you just are feeling four shocks of it and every, all this bad stuff that happens. And a way of being in the world that is often very defensive because we're kind of this remnant of God's people in a sense that we're kind of holding on in these enclaves and out there is just all of them, you know, who kind of, you know, probably even Antichrist forming out there somewhere. If only we can wait to see what, what that looks like. And a tendency naturally, and I've met Christians in my ministry who are like this, along with this kind of pessimism and looking around and seeing a lot of apocalyptic significance to things and this kind of defensiveness, also a tendency with people like this to to really sort of devalue ordinary human life 
you know, because what's the point of all these ordinary, day, everyday human things when, you know, Christ is coming, we've got to get people saved, ASAP. And those last two features, the, the defensiveness, kind of the us-them thing, and the kind of this devaluing of ordinary life really turns off a lot of younger saints, I've noticed. And so my goal today, which you've already surmised, is I would like to question this reading of Jesus' words here and question this way of reading related biblical texts. So I want to begin today with just a clearer reading, a clearer, hopefully, reading. Here's my thesis, and you guys will think this is insane when I say it, but then I will defend it, okay? Here's my thesis reading this text today. This discourse that we just read is not about the end of the world. It is rather, Jesus is prophesying about events leading up to and including the destruction of Herod's temple in the year of our Lord, 70. And you will notice in verse 27, please have your text in front of you and see these verses, so you're not, uh, you will not want to take my word for anything I say today. You ought to see it in the text. You will notice that Jesus describes that coming event, the destruction of Herod's temple. He describes it in verse 27 as the coming of the Son of Man who is prophesied by Daniel. He describes it in verse 33 as the passing away of one heaven and earth that were joined by the temple and the replacing of that old heaven and earth with a new heaven and earth who were joined not by the temple but by Jesus. And he says in verse 34, which I didn't read but you can go on and look at it, that this, this event is, it's a big deal. It's going to shake things up a lot, and it is so imminent that his apostles, his disciples, need to be very strong and very alert because they're going to need to live through this, and it's going to be challenging. And I think that that thesis that I'm offering today, it makes sense of his promise then in verse 32 that all of this is going to take place before this generation around him passes away. So here's the question. Do I have any evidence for this crazy thesis I want to put before you? Well, two things clarify what Jesus is talking about throughout this discourse. One clarifier is that he explicitly says that he's talking about Jerusalem and the temple, which kind of helps. And the second clarifier is that he refers to some prophecies in Daniel that had to be fulfilled in his time, not at the end of the world. And I want to examine those in turn. So we're looking at this clearer reading. First clarifier is Jesus' references to Jerusalem and the temple. Now notice, we read it, what prompts this discourse from our Lord? Well, it's admiration of Herod's temple. And by the way, you should do some reading, maybe check out some Google uh, pictures that kind of reproduce Herod's temple. It was legendarily magnificent. Uh, Nicholas Perrin says that some of the surviving wall stones, maybe some of you guys have been, you know, Sal, you've been to Jerusalem, some of the surviving wall stones of this temple weigh more than a jumbo jet. It was a magnificent piece of uh, ancient construction. And so uh, it's inter interesting to think about who is doing the admiring here. Well, given the rest of this is, is, is the rest of his discourse is addressed to the disciples, I think it's safe to say that they are the ones who are admiring the temple. So Jesus is surrounded by his disciples, and they're just looking at this like, "Wow, this is, look at the look at the glory of this." Now, the crazy thing is, these disciples had seen the temple many times before. So this is not like you know. Ben Miller in 2005 in New York City, like Gaga in Times Square. They're not like tourists admiring this temple. They've seen it many times. I think Nicholas Perrin is onto something when he says, these disciples have just watched their master stop the sacrifice system cold 
by overthrowing the money changer tables and setting his own teaching in the center of the temple. And I think they're looking around being like, yeah, this is kind of our house now. Kind of checking out maybe the corner offices in this place. Like, you know, this is awesome. And we're kind of going to be, you know, we're with the Messiah. This might even be our place now that our Lord has asserted his authority over this place. So they're kind of getting excited about the temple now that Jesus is showing that he is Lord here. And his response in verse 6 would have just been buckets of ice water on the heart of a faithful Jew. He says, there's not going to be a stone left standing on another here. Shocking thing to say. And he goes on to explain in verse 9 that between this moment when he's speaking and what he calls the end, there is going to be a time of massive upheaval, a time of wars and tumults, very unsettled time. And he tells them in verse 8 that they need to be very careful during this time that they are not led astray, that they are not misguided. They need to beware of false prophets in these times who are going to try to turn attention away from Jesus and the good news of his kingdom and get these disciples kind of, and a lot of other people, sort of turned away toward other so-called messiahs and other kind of so-called gospels. And he says, you need, to, you need to beware and don't be taken in. Don't be led astray. I mean, a lot of people saying, I'm the Messiah, or now's the time God's kingdom is arriving. You already know the truth. I am he. The time begins with me and my work. And he tells them in verse 9, just don't be unsettled. Your circumstances will be unsettled. But you guys don't be unsettled as world events become very, very intense around you. Nation against nation, kingdoms against kingdoms, verse 10. Great earthquakes, various places, famines, and pestilence. Because all of these things are birth pangs, because a birth is happening, as Revelation describes it, a new age of Messiah's kingdom. You know what is crazy as I read the book of Acts? You guys know that the book of Acts is the second volume of Luke's work? In the book of Acts, as you read through in the early days of the church, you find references to earthquakes, like the one that shook Peter out of prison, uh, or, or Paul and Silas. There were famines in the days of the early church, heavenly signs, nothing less than actually the Lord himself appearing, for example, to Saul of Tarsus, a bunch of stuff in early Acts, and you realize that Luke is directly saying, see, these birth pangs of this new age, they're happening. And then in verses 12 through 17, you'll notice Jesus goes on, and he gives his disciples some idea of what they themselves personally are going to suffer in these coming years because they're going to be pretty much the only kids on the block saying Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Messiah, courageously witnessing he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah. And they're going to have to do that in the face of seething Jewish opposition from the Jewish rulers and a lot of pagan opposition as well. And that brings us to a second reference to Jerusalem, still under this first clarifier, Jesus referring to Jerusalem and the temple. You'll notice in verse 20, in verse 20, Jesus really gets clear about Jerusalem. He says, so you're going through all this tough stuff, you guys, as you're witnessing to me, and the world is very unsettled, a lot going on when you're reading your newspaper. The crucial sign to look for, guys, the crucial thing that will show you that the kingdom of God has been transferred from Messiah's enemies to himself and to his saints. The thing that's going to be, make this visible 
the thing you've got to be watching for that proves I'm not a fraud, you're not crazy to believe in me, this is the kingdom narrative that I've been telling you, this gospel that I am going to be the one who rules and reigns over all things. The thing you need to be looking for is armies surrounding Jerusalem. Because those, verse 22, will be the days of God's vengeance. Wrath upon this generation of the people who killed the king. Refused to acknowledge that he was from God. Refused to receive God's grace and salvation and his offer of peace through him. Who made war against not only him, but his saints. That's what you look for. It's going to be a terrible time for Jerusalem. Watch for the armies surrounding Jerusalem. Interestingly, in connection with that depiction of what we now know to be the armies of Rome surrounding and ultimately raising Jerusalem to the ground, Jesus also there in verse 20 hints at a second clarifier. So I said the first clarifier is that Jesus explicitly says he's talking about the Jerusalem and the temple. But the second clarifier, still under this clearer reading, is that he also, in verse 20, mentions the timeline in Daniel's prophecies. Now, in Luke, Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know, this, notice this word, you will know that its desolation is near. In Matthew's gospel, we have a parallel account where Jesus is preaching the same sermon. Guess what he says at this point in the sermon in Matthew? So you can set Luke and Matthew, you can look at this in your Bible, and you can set them side by side, and they're both talking about the same thing, but I want you to notice the language that Matthew uses about this event that Jesus describes here. Matthew says, you will see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So whatever this desolation is here of Jerusalem that Jesus describes in verse 20, Matthew calls it the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Now, if you set aside Luke and you just go to Matthew and you read what is called his Olivet Discourse, which is the same thing in Matthew's Gospel, you will find, and you start reading what people have said about that phrase, the abomination of desolation. Man, I got some mad, crazy uh, interpretations of that when I was a kid. You can find some interesting stuff online. A lot of ink spilled over that phrase, what is the abomination of desolation or the abomination that desolates? What is Matthew talking about? Well, Luke clarifies it. He tells us that at least the desolation part of the abomination that desolates, at least the desolation part is Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. Its desolation comes with the arrival of those armies. So what do you suppose Matthew meant when he talked about the abomination that results in desolation? What was, brothers and sisters, the abomination before God that led to this desolation of this city? Well, if you go back and read in Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel shows up and he's talking to Daniel, and Gabriel tells Daniel, looking down, oh, 500 years into the future, he tells Daniel to comfort him as he's kind of trying to figure out what God's going to do about the exile. He says, some centuries from now, a he uses the Hebrew word a Mashiach, a Mashiach, a Messiah, a prince is going to come. And one of the things that Gabriel says that prince will do when he comes is he will, and I'm quoting here, put an end to sacrifice and offering. And yet, Gabriel goes on to say, after the Mashiach, the prince, puts an end to sacrifice and offering, following that, there will be abominations, and on the wing of those abominations will come desolation of the city. 
That's what Gabriel says. So I think the most faithful reading of the abomination that brings the desolation of Jerusalem is that the abomination before God was the ongoing sacrifices and offerings in Herod's temple after Messiah had already put an end to sacrifice and offering by his offering of himself. Do you follow? Jesus, I mean, read Hebrews. Jesus offered to God the once for all sacrifice that does what none of those other blood sacrifices of bulls and goats and all the rest could do. It put an end to sin. There's no more payment to be made. It is finished, Jesus said. God is satisfied. Amen? And it's over. And Hebrews says, if you continue on, trusting in the blood of bulls and goats, after that once-for-all sacrifice has been offered, you are damning yourself. There is no other Savior. There is no other salvation. Yet that went on flagrantly, led by the very rulers who heard Jesus speak, knew exactly who he was, and killed him anyway. And this matches the consistent New Testament witness that those who forsake Jesus the Messiah and forsake his once-for-all sacrifice to go back to that old sacrificial system are walking away from grace. There's another Daniel reference in verses 25 to 27, still under this second clarifier in this clearer reading. You will notice that Jesus says in verse 26 that this desolation of Jerusalem is accompanied by a shaking of the powers of heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. And in that shaking of the powers of heaven, something will become visible. The ruin of Jerusalem, the desolation of Jerusalem, in heaven powers are being shaken. And that will become visible when Jerusalem is desolated because what people will see as God's wrath falls upon that city, Jesus says in verse 27, then they will see this extraordinary event that has happened in the heavenly powers, in the heavenly realm. What was it that happened? What is the shakeup in the heavenly realm that becomes visible? They will see it in the desolation of Jerusalem. Think about that, guys. What was, it, what was the shakeup in heaven that became visible in the desolation of Jerusalem? Well, Daniel told us. The shakeup in the heavens was the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. And they'll see that when Jerusalem is desolated. Now, Daniel told us what this coming of the Son of Man is. Daniel chapter 7, you'll remember this. After four beast kingdoms, we know those as Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. In the days of the fourth kingdom, Daniel is told that a Son of Man will come this is Daniel's language, in clouds of heaven to the throne of the Ancient of Days, and he will receive, quote, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Do you know what that is called in theological language? The ascension and enthronement of Jesus the Messiah. When he sat down at the Father's right hand, he came as the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days, and he received all authority in heaven and on earth. And Jesus says they're going to see that that has happened when Jerusalem falls. Now it's visible. The Lord of heaven 
rules, and his name is Jesus. Jerusalem's fall is the visible sign of that heavenly shakeup, that Jesus, the Son of Man, now rides in the cloudy chariots of God himself with power and great glory, and he rules over all kingdoms and all peoples, even those mighty powers that murdered him. That's the coming of the Son of Man, as Daniel described it. And it had to happen in the days of this fourth kingdom, not, by the way, as Tim LaHaye would have it, sometime in the future when the Antichrist comes and all this last day's madness happens. Now, that's my clearer reading, hopefully laid out very clearly from the text. I now want to turn briefly to some implications of this different way of reading. In other words, what to do with all of this. Why does this matter? Ben Miller, why are you wasting an entire sermon on this? Here are two implications. First of all, a set of implications for reading other Bible passages. What I want to encourage you guys is this. When you are reading texts in the Bible that until now you have assumed must refer to Jesus' second coming and to the end of the world, can I encourage you guys to do something? Please just slow down. Slow down. Because some texts, not all, but some texts in the Bible that refer to the coming of Jesus may in fact not be about his second coming at the end of history, but may in fact be about his coming as the Son of Man to judge the powers of his generation that made war against him. Do you, you follow? When the New Testament speaks about the coming of of the Lord, sometimes it may be referring to the the coming that we're still awaiting, but much of it may be referring to the coming that he that occurred when he came in judgment upon his enemies as the newly enthroned king, the son of man who's received the kingdom from the ancient of days, and Jesus says it'll be visible when Jerusalem falls. And by the way, it'll happen within this generation. So just slow down. This also, this reading, it's talking about reading other passages, the implications for other passages. This, this reading also helps us to see why the apostles in the New Testament viewed the coming of the Lord as so very imminent. Do you know why they saw it as just about to happen? It's about to happen. And scholars, liberal scholars, by the way, have gone after this so many times over the years. They said, see, the, the disciples clearly expected the coming of the Lord any day, and here we are thousands of years later, which means they were just deluded. Do you know why they believed the coming of the Lord was imminent? Because it was. When Jesus says in Revelation 22, behold, I am coming quickly, he's not talking about the end of world history, beloved. He's talking about his coming to judge that whore, which is apostate Jerusalem, and the beast of Rome on which she sits. So just slow down. I also would encourage you, we need to revisit some language that we have assumed refers to an end of history antichrist because some of that language might refer instead, might refer instead to powers that opposed Messiah and his saints between the cross and the fall of Jerusalem. And one other implication for reading other passages, this also helps us see that many, many warnings about falling away in the New Testament, Hebrews, for example, the book of Hebrews, many of those warnings about falling away are directly concerned, not with just general sins and doubts that Christians experience, they're directly concerned, these warnings, with the very strong temptation in the early church made up mostly of Jews to turn back from Jesus the Messiah to the familiarity and, dare I say, the safety of Second Temple Judaism. It would have been a whole lot easier for them to go back. But 
that raises an objection that I'm sure many of you are feeling. The, these implications for reading other passages, I'm sure that raises an objection, and that brings us to a second set of implications, and then I'll be done. I want to also briefly speak about implications for our, our living in the world. So I hope I've given you some ideas for reading other passages. Now some implications for you and me living in the world, because I think that some of you are probably sitting there thinking, wow, Ben, this is pretty weird, because if much more of the New Testament than we have supposed refers not to the end of the world that we're still waiting for, refers not to the second coming that we're still waiting for, and confess we believe in, but rather a lot of this language, it turns out, refers to events that already occurred. Aren't you really saying then that all of those New Testament texts are now irrelevant to us? All of these prophecies and warnings, beloved, most certainly not. Because the New Testament records not just the cross and the resurrection where the power of death and the power of the devil were broken. The New Testament records more. It records some of the early wars of our king from his heavenly throne. With the expectation as the Lord went forth, the lamb goes forth to war in Revelation, for example, with the expectation that this reigning lion lamb was very, very soon going to publicly triumph over the rulers that killed him and was going to decisively close the pre-Messiah age and all of the powers of that age. He's now Lord. The angelic powers are not. He's now Lord. The Sanhedrin is not. He's now Lord. Caesar is not. They expected the public triumph of the Lord because now he's on his heavenly throne. And the New Testament records some of those very early days of the wars of the Lamb. And one way to read the New Testament is like a dispatch on D-Day. The beach is now secured. The beach is secured. And the liberation of this world from the devil's influence and power has been proceeding, brothers and sisters, right up until April 23rd, 2023, as you're sitting here today, as those who've been liberated by this same Lamb of God. And so the New Testament functions for us like early Deuteronomy functioned for the children of Israel, and, and it told of the early wars in which the early powers fell in Canaan, and it assures us as we invade, quote-unquote, the earth with the gospel of our Lord Jesus, it assures us those early decisive battles of the Lamb, they were won. And however difficult the battles ahead, you expect more of the same. And the New Testament warns us against the allure of our contemporary would-be messiahs. Do you think false prophets ended in the first century? There are still would-be messiahs. There are still false gospels. Here, trust in this. Get, all, get over your Jesus thing. There's something else you really need to put your faith in. And so every single warning in the New Testament we can take as a help to us, a summons to our own faith in Jesus. And I can hear you saying, and I get it, okay, sure, so fine, Ben, we can get hope from the New Testament, we can get warning from the New Testament, but still, there's a, and this is the last problem you've got to deal with, if we in 2023 step back from assuming that Jesus is about to return any minute and it can't come fast enough <laughs> and we open ourselves to this somewhat wider view of God's plans in history, will this not, Pastor Miller, deprive us of any real urgency? Beloved, it should certainly not deprive us of urgency and here's why. This reading tells you that God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is not short on time. 
but you are. You are short on time. Your life is dribbling away very, very quickly, and you haven't got very much of it left. So you're short on time. God has all kinds of time in history. He might, he might, there might be another 50,000 years of his plan, his kingdom plan. Your life... See, the reign of Jesus from the throne in heaven, it's going to outlast and ultimately subdue all regimes, all rulers, all realms. Whereas you, my brother and my sister, you've got a few days left in your little walk under the sun to serve God's purposes in your generation. So I want to ask you very boldly, as I ask myself, how, look at me, how is your life, what's left of it, making Jesus known? How is your life right now showing the goodness of the fact that Jesus is Lord? How is your life strengthening others, building up others in Jesus' name? I don't see this as an accusation, but I do say it as a warning, brothers and sisters. Some of you are wasting your life on stuff that not only has no value for the life to come, it is not obvious that it has any value for this life, other than giving you some good, warm, fuzzy feelings. Are you growing in Christ-likeness? Are you growing in blessing your neighbors in Jesus' name? Are you or are you not? Because if you are not, you are wasting your opportunity to serve the king. And can I just say, as we close, that, <laughs> I'm speaking to me, this is why God is hard on us. Man, I wish God would let me, just leave me alone and let me be comfortable for 10 minutes. Do you know why God is hard on you? Because God's on a mission. And Christopher Wright I read something this week that floored me in his book, The Mission of God. He said, because see, we all want a mission, don't we? I want God to give me a mission. I want my life to be important. Christopher Wright says, I may wonder what kind of mission God has for me when I should ask what kind of me God wants for his mission. That's why God's hard on you and hard on me. He wants a certain you who's fit to serve his mission because that's what your life is for. Jesus wants people who, as Bonhoeffer put it, are ready to come and die. You'll notice the road to this victory Jesus describes in this discourse, it lies through a cross that is still to come. These disciples must be ready to suffer with Christ so that they can reign with him. We'll talk about that next week. But Father, meanwhile, bless these things to our hearts and our lives for the glory of your name. In Jesus we pray, amen. <laughs>